News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, don't adjust your radio. We did that on purpose, actually. What is that sound? Well, that is three different fast radio bursts. What are they? Well, they're mysterious is what they are. They're intergalactic radio waves that have been bombarding Earth since 2007. And scientists are actually still kind of puzzled about what they actually are and where they are coming from. So Dr. Katie Mack is the Hawking Chair in Cosmology and Science Communication at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics and joins us now. Dr. Mack, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. How much of these radio bursts do we understand? (laughs) <laughs> well, there's there's a lot we don't understand about them yet. Um, what we do what we do know is that there's some kind of very powerful uh, emission of radiation of of radio light that is coming from uh, sources in other galaxies. So we know that they're coming from very far away. We know that they're very powerful bursts of light, and this is one of those kinds of things. They look like they're probably a kind of burst of radiation that comes from a very uh, a very magnetized star called a magnetar. It's a kind of dead star that has a really strong magnetic field, and sometimes they uh, the magnetic fields do these weird things that, that create a little burst of light. Uh, the sun does that with its magnetic field. It creates these, these solar bursts of, um, of radiation, uh, solar flares. And it seems like these very, very magnetized stars might do something similar, and but at a very at much higher level, uh, much stronger kind of pulse. And so if these fast radio bursts are these extremely magnetized stars uh, that make these very powerful bursts of light, then that fits all the data. Um, but we're still not sure exactly how that happens or what's making some of these uh, very uh, magnetized stars do this and what, what's making others not. And we're, we're not even sure if, if that's what it is. There are lots of different theories for what makes these very, very powerful bursts of light. Is there a regularity to the pattern? Um, so sometimes there's some of these things uh, seem to repeat. So some, some of these uh, fast radio bursts repeat and we see them in patterns, and, and they're not really regular, but uh, there seems to be maybe a little bit of a pattern. It's kind of unclear. Uh, sometimes we only see one burst, and we never see that thing happen again. And th- the first several were like that, so we thought maybe it was some kind of like supernova, some kind of disruptive event. But now, because we see some that repeat, we think that it might be some kind of um, some kind of process that might have to do with the the rotation or the orbit of the object. But it's not in a very periodic pattern, so that's a little bit confusing. Right. And so it might have something to do also with the stuff around the object, um, kind of moving the light around. How far away are we talking about here, Dr. Mack? Is it, is it one location? Is it multiple locations? They're all over the sky, and they're in other galaxies. So they're very far away, um, you know, millions or billions of light years away. Um, they're very, very distant objects, and they they don't seem to be... Uh, specifically in a certain part of the sky at all. They're, that's one of the ways that we know that they're really far away because if they were all in the same part of, the, if they were all in a line across the sky where we see you know, the Milky Way stretching across the sky, then we would know that they're probably in our galaxy. Um, but because they're in lots of different places in the sky, that suggests that they're so far away that they're not following the pattern of, of 
where the stuff is in our galaxy, they're somewhere out beyond them. So they seem to be coming from distant galaxies. Okay, so where do you even start with something like this? If it's it's been a puzzle <laughs> since two thousand seven, what do you what yeah. what do you work on? Well, there's a lot of different things we can do. So we can look at the repeating bursts. So some of these bursts, because they're repeating, we can get a very good idea of where they are because they happen more than once. We can train our telescopes on them. We can learn about what kind of galaxies they're in. So we've been able to figure out which galaxy a lot of these are coming from. And we can learn about the patterns in those galaxies. Are those galaxies mostly the kind of galaxies that are currently making a lot of stars? Are they the kind that, that seem to be not making very many stars anymore? Um, we, so we can get some idea from that. We can learn about a lot about their light. We can you know, look at the spectrum of the light. We can look at the polarization of the light and try and learn something about what, what is making that light. We can use other kinds of telescopes to see if there's, if, you know, we see these in the radio part of the spectrum. We can look to see if we see any clues in infrared light or x-ray light or visible light. And so far, we haven't seen anything in anything but radio. So that's interesting. Um, so it's a lot of patterns. It's a lot of like, you know, uh, are they mostly coming from star forming galaxies? Are they mostly, um, you know, polarized in some way? And then we, we kind of gather a bunch of clues. And then we try and connect that to what we know about other kinds of radio sources like pulsars or like magnetars, uh, these very magnetized stars that I talked about. Right. I guess, Dr. Mack, what, what surprises me about this is that there are still so many mysterious things that we work yeah. on that we don't know the answers to. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem is, you know, you just, you don't have a whole lot to go on with a lot of these very distant objects in space. We just have the light and we can, we can look at the spectrum of that light as we do with fast radio bursts. We can look at how the light changes over time, as we do with fast radio bursts. Um, but we, we don't have anything else to hold on to. We just have that light to work with. And it's amazing what we can do with that light, how we can use the spectrum of the light to learn about the chemicals involved in um, whatever object we're looking at. We can learn about the, how the light is moving through the space in between there and us. Um, but uh, that's that's kind of it. <laughs> so I think it's astonishing how much we know about some of these very, very distant objects, um, given how little we have to go on. Right. Well, more work for us to do, right? Dr. Mack, thank you so much for yeah. your time. Thank you. Appreciate that. Dr. Katie Mack is the Hawking Chair in Cosmology and Science Communication at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics, uh, one of the many scientists who are trying to solve the mystery of these radio bursts that have been coming to Earth since 2007. This is Mornings with Simi. There's really no way you can put a label on the musical work of William Prince. I mean, he is an acclaimed Cree singer and songwriter and been influenced by, you know, the likes of Meatloaf, loves Meatloaf, to collaborating with producers who have worked with Taylor Swift. Now, he just had a sold-out show in Victoria. He's going to be in Vancouver at the Orpheum this weekend. Our contributor, Scott Shantz, had a chance to catch up with him. I'm speaking with William Prince, singer-songwriter from Selkirk, Manitoba. His new album, Stand in the Joy, is out now, and it's absolutely fantastic. He's playing on Saturday night, February the 24th, at the Orpheum Theatre here in Vancouver. Really looking forward to the show. How has the tour been so far, William? Oh, geez, it's been a dream. This is uh, my most ambitious venture yet, and... Um, we started with a week in Ontario and the rooms were fantastic. The people were fantastic. Uh, the set and the light show we're bringing, everything has been 
everything's been a dream. So I'm really excited to play this gorgeous theater. I've, I've seen a photo or two of the Orpheum now, and I can't wait to get in there. So It sort of feels like you're having a moment right now, you know, like this is the beginning of something really big for you. Does it feel like that for you? Yeah, you know, I feel I've been having these moments for a while, so it's it's been a, a whole decade of work to get to this point where it feels like the moment is starting, so... Let me ask you about um, songwriting. And, you know, you're Canadian. You've performed with, like, tons of um, big-name Canadians, you know, Tragically Hip, Serena Ryder, uh, Neil... I know you've toured with Neil Young. Like, that's, that's big stuff. Does being Canadian influence your songwriting in a certain way because we have a, like a bit of a different identity than folk artists coming up out of the States and other places. Yeah. You know, there's always a bit of an asterisk beside the Canadians I find when we're, when we're going, uh, into the, into the States. So, you know, I think, I think everything I make, it's in my memory. I think it predates even the concept of being Canadian, you know, being first nations in this country. My, my stuff comes from, from the earth and this lived experience of, 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 of everybody that's had an important impact in my life. And that includes, of course, Neil and Serena and, you know, Paul Langlois and his family embracing us and, and the whole tragically hip camp just rooting for me. This is something, something I never thought I would, well, you don't think you're going to say these kind of things in your life, but how blessed am I? How, how incredible it is that, you know, I got to sing with Willie Nelson last year and mm-hmm. play the Opry. And, and these are pretty, you know, when you think of Willie Nelson and the Grand Ole Opry, those are American institutions. So I think I'm doing all the right things as a Canadian, per se, to, to go there and, and represent us well. I love that. You also mentioned uh, being a First Nations artist, and it seems like you have just been authentic and now the authenticity is paying due. How important was it to you to present an authentic piece of work with, with Stand in the Joy and with all your other records? I think that that was so important to me and is why I worked. You know, it took a lot of patience. And so that was really important to me. You know, it took, uh, it took a whole village to raise me up this high. That, that's the Peguist First Nation where I'm from, where it all started, where the first where the first inklings of guitar and writing began with my dad teaching me and growing up playing in in country bands and such, you know, I always walk with the, with the intent that I am, I'm a world-class artist who happens to be first Nations, Mm -hmm. And I think, I think the best part of it all is like, it's like when you see Adam beach in another movie or TV show, or you see another indigenous performer, doing really well in the world. It just, it moves us all ahead. William Prince, he is a multi-Juno nominated and winning uh, folk singer who will be performing at the Orpheum this Saturday. That's February 24th. WilliamPrinceMusic.com and uh, the new album Stand in the Joy is out now. I highly recommend it. I appreciate it, Scott. That means the world to me. Thank you so much. And thank you to Scott and to William Prince again. William Prince at the Orpheum this weekend. There are a few tickets still available, so you should definitely check that out. This is Mornings with Simi. That's what you've been waiting for. We're going to break down this year's BC budget, all the information that we got with the help of Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Have you come across the right word to describe the budget? (laughs) Metaphor alert. 
So I see my colleagues all struggling to come up with the right metaphor. Was it a tide of red ink, a tsunami of red ink? I went with an atmospheric river of nice. red ink. The yes. mind on Mark Madriga. What would Mark Madriga say? Uh, yeah, it, it really was staggering to just contemplate this. I mean, you've got massive increase in the provincial debt and a record record deficit, not one, but three record-breaking deficits. And I think, because I've heard the New Democrats on this issue, I think it's important to point out the record that the EB government is breaking here. The previous record deficit in British Columbia was set at the depths of the pandemic when we had an actual crisis and a consensus of all parties in the legislature that we needed to run a deficit to protect the economy and protect British Columbia. That was a, a crisis. So the EB government's breaking that record three times. Where's the crisis? Um, you know, again, another NDP line is, oh, well, <laughs> yeah, sure, you know, all the right-wingers, they want, they want us to manage uh, spending. No, let's talk about John Horgan government. John Horgan didn't lack for compassion. John Horgan and Carol James didn't lack for an awareness that we needed to increase spending and to make up for all the cuts and restraint under the BC Liberals. But John Horgan, in spite of all that, managed to deliver four surplus budgets in six tries. And the only serious deficit he ran was the one he needed to run in the depths of the pandemic. So all the guff from the New Democrats about no alternatives, it's not borne out by the record of their own party in office under John Horgan. What is the political calculation here, Vaughn? I'm, I'm kind of struggling to understand it. You know, I just think it's an utter failure to manage. You know, I, I uh, asked one question in the lockup using the government's own documents. So the New Democrats have four hospital projects that have gone wildly over budget. Uh, the new one in Surrey, 68% over budget, and they just broke ground on it. New hospital in Dawson Creek, 62%. New hospital in Williams Lake, 58%. New hospital in Cowichan, and it's 62%. And I asked the minister, like, if that's the best you can do in terms of your own budget numbers, why should we believe any of the numbers in here? And she said, oh, well, you know, there's all kinds of factors out there that are leading to overruns in hospital construction. Yeah, and those are well known. So why hasn't the government come up with better estimates rather than constantly surprising itself with these overruns. Yeah, why not build that into the budget? Yeah, I don't understand that. That's, that's a good example, you know. Uh, and you go all the way through it, and I just think, you know, washing your hands and saying, well, only a right-winger could actually make a better budget than this. No, anybody could, actually. That's the, that's the thing. And, you know, the, that leads Simeon to the other storyline in the lockup. We were all struggling to go what's all this debt paying for? It was a real struggle to find the shiny, bright objects in the budget that you could say, oh, well, yeah, okay, so British Columbians are getting this and this and this and this and this, right? And it was a struggle. I mean, I think that's the reason that the, the coverage was, you know, meh, was because you're getting a massive amount of debt 
and no real indication what you're getting for it. I think most of the coverage was, uh, you know, there's things here and there that you can point to, but not an awful lot. Uh, and Sydney, so, I think that leads to the other thing you hear, you know, they, they say, well, the public doesn't care about deficits and debt anymore, you know, what's been going on with the Trudeau government and all that. And I think, I would say that's more nuanced. <clears throat> if people feel they're getting a lot for the debt and deficit, a lot that's needed, like what we needed to do during COVID, I think it's true that people accept that there are times when governments need to go significantly into debt and deficit. But to just do it as a matter of routine, as this government is doing, I don't, I don't know as though the public does buy that because I think people are going to say, what am I getting for it? And man, is it hard to come up with a highlights package from that budget. It's a bit of a test, though, isn't it, to see will the public – there was a time when you just you simply could not do this politically. Nope. And is this a test to see can we do this politically? Yeah, no, I, I think that is a test. And I think, you know, if you go back to what the Horgan government tried to do, and Carol James in particular – they, so I mean, they were guided by that experience that the New Democrats exactly. had in the 1990s. Yeah. And that's why they were determined to, wherever possible, manage provincial finances. And that's why they tried to maintain the province's credit rating and did so. You know, I think it, it's a record that at the time, uh, I wrote a bunch of things praising them for it because the credit rating agencies came back and said, no, this government is doing a good job. And because they did that, when a crisis hit, we were able to run a big deficit with no impact on the provincial, on the fiscal health of the province, right? That's why you do it in bad times, right? Katrina Conroy's line yesterday was, the debt is manageable, well, it's managed a bull because past governments managed it. And he didn't just say, well, people are needy. We just need to spend and spend and spend. Um, you know, it, the, the Horton government did not lack for compassion. It didn't lack for trying to do more uh, and make up for some of the programs that had been starved and underfunded under the liberals. And in spite of all that, they still managed, as I said, Four surplus budgets in six tries. Uh, that's a record you can point to and say, why can't this government do the same? All right, we are breaking down the provincial budget with Von Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. So, Von, what are we getting for this? Oh, man, is that a song for this year's provincial budget. <laughs> <laughs> you like that, yeah, We you? both love the Eagles, but we do. wow. Uh, yeah, so, you know, we look at that because... You know, in, in fairness, I think the public has uh, changed its attitude about debt and deficits, and partly because they're looking at some of the things they're getting for it, and that those things needed to be addressed. But it was a struggle with this budget. I, it, one example, uh, Surrey Schools, we've done plenty of stories, yes. portables, uh, double-decker portables in Surrey. This is where the New Democrats hold a whole bunch of seats, virtually all of them, right? And so... We've got this massive capital plan. You go to the list, it's in the budget, of brand new schools that have been added to the schedule this year. There's only one, and it's not in Surrey. It's here in Victoria Capital Region. Cedar Hill Middle School, 
And I'm going like... I don't get it. <laughs> the people in Surrey, it's real out there. Ask Katrina Conway about it. And she said, well, you know, I was out in Surrey the other day and they've got these lovely new modular schools that uh, they're building. So it doesn't sound to me like, the you know, again, if you're in Surrey, you know, geez, what are we getting for this thing? Um, a lot of us did look at the BC Hydro rebate or the energy rebate. <clears throat> and you may remember when the energy minister dropped that memo last fall, it had a reference in it to the need for some bright, shiny object from hydro. So I assume this is it. It is uh, works out. It's about $100 per household. And it is intended to compensate people for the increase, just the increase in the carbon tax that's coming this year. So uh, don't get the idea in your head it's going to cover off what you're paying in the carbon tax. Uh, if you've looked at your natural gas bill lately, you know that the carbon tax is now about 50% more of your bill than the cost of the gas itself. So that's where we're headed with carbon taxes. But the money for this thing, this rebate, credit, uh, is coming from BC Hydro. So $370 million taken out of BC Hydro. Um Simi, you will remind when the, remember, and I will remember when the New Democrats were opposed to using Crown corporations yeah. as cash machines. Okay, fine, that was then. This is now. They took three hundred million dollars out of it uh, when David Eby first became premier in order to provide a one hundred dollar cash payback uh, for hydro, and now they've taken another three hundred and seventy million dollars out of hydro. But hydro's losing money. Hydro's losing money because it had to rustle up 20% of its power uh, last year um, from outside sources, and that's expensive. And the only way they've been able to balance the books there is to do two things, hydro seeking a rate increase and divert money from their deferral accounts. So yes, hydro is seeking to raise its rates and the government is taking money from hydro and giving it back to people in the form of a rebate. And if this government thinks that ratepayers can't figure that equation out, uh, I think it's underestimating the intelligence of uh, the British Columbians, myself. I, I, that transaction is just smoke and mirrors, shell game, election year stuff. I don't I don't see that actually adding up to anything people are going to be impressed by. It's almost like BC Hydro is the new uh, ICBC. Yeah, the new cash cow, you know, and, and, and it'd be precise how they do this, right? They order BC Hydro to do it. They then order the independent BC Utilities Commission to approve it. So put aside any notion that we have independent regulation of BC Hydro, as the New Democrats promised in opposition. The cabinet tells Hydro what to do, and then they tell the Independent Utilities Commission what to do. And we discovered last year when the premier doesn't like what the Utilities Commission is doing, he fires the chair and CEO of the Utilities Commission. So this is as heavy-handed as we've ever seen on this stuff. And, you know, at the end of the day, yes, you're going to get 100 bucks through relief, but understand that the other hand from government is trying to get it back, claw it back, by seeking a rate increase for BC Hydro. 
Okay, so you you've been doing this for a while, Vaughn. Uh, yes. You you've seen a lot of budgets come and go. Have you seen one like this before? Not in an election year, I have to say. Um, the only thing, the only calculation I can figure out is Conroy said one thing yesterday. She was asked, "Well, is this all election year stuff?" And she said, "Well, if we were thinking about an elect the election, there'd have been a lot more in the budget." So. I don't There's get it. Huge, so I, I took that as a hint. There's more to come. I took that as a hint that what they're actually doing is holding back the bright, shiny objects for the NDP election platform, which we will get later this year. She did put aside a lot of money into contingency funds unallocated. In the past, that kind of money has been used to pay um pay increases for public servants in the middle of negotiations. So they don't want to give away how much money they have for, for the unions. They wait till a contract signed. Then they take the money out of contingencies. Well, we're not in the middle of negotiations now. So there's, there's billions of dollars there. Uh, they said, well, it's for crisis, uh, another atmospheric river, this one not of debt, but water, uh, wildfires. We do need to hold back more money these days because of that. And the economy is growing slowly, but it's possible that they will have that money to draw on and be able to finance the election platform as well. And near as I can figure out, that's maybe where the new schools in Surrey are going to be. That's maybe where some of the other bright, shiny objects are going to be. They're holding it back for the election platform, the elections in the fall. We used to have elections in the spring, right in the middle of the budget cycle. So governments didn't have much choice. If they wanted an election budget, they had to announce it on the spot. Right. These guys can wait because the election doesn't really start the full campaign doesn't start until after Labor Day. Yeah, that makes more sense. Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. All right, that was Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun breaking down the budget for us. This is Mornings with Simi. It's frankly shocking. As recently as a few months ago, they were targeting a budget deficit of $3.75 billion, which was already a record. Today we find out it's almost an $8 billion deficit, the largest ever in the history of the province of British Columbia. And that is opposition leader Kevin Falcon talking about the budget. Now to our continuing coverage of this year's provincial budget. This is the final one before an election this fall. The government will tell you it is focused on helping families. Critics will say there's not enough focus on fiscal balance. Businesses were looking for help. People wanted to see more on housing, health care, education, infrastructure projects. Now, the list of demands definitely goes on and on. But there were also no big projects announced either. What about new schools? What about transit? What does this budget say about the health of this province? Well, joining us now to talk about all of this and break it down is Katrina Conroy, BC's Minister of Finance. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good morning, Timmy. How would you describe this budget? Well, I would describe it as it's a budget for the people of British Columbia because it's about ensuring that we continue to provide services for people. When like, times are tough right now, there's a slower global economy. There's you know high in- inflation, interest rates. Uh, we're hoping those will come down in the spring, but uh, it's affecting people and people are struggling. And this budget is going to help people. In what way? I mean, are you not concerned that we are running the largest deficit in B.C. history? 
We're actually, um, we can afford this. Um, right now, our, our debt-to-GDP ratio is one of the lowest in the country. Our, what they call an interest bite, what we pay on interest is only 3.2 cents on the dollar, which is one of the lowest in Canada. Um, we know that uh, we're facing big global challenges right now, and we need to support people. And the option that we had was to increase the deficit or to make cuts. And we're not going to cut health care. We're not going to cut education, services for kids. We're not going to cut those things. We're going to support people with what they need. And people need to know that we have their back, that it's this is important. And it's, you know, we, we feel that uh, we're, this is a budget that uh, is the right budget for the time right now. Okay, so if that's the case, then, if this is about helping people, what are the people of British Columbia going to get for this? Where are the big projects? For instance, where are the new schools for Surrey? Well, there there are new schools. Um, some of them are they're in the, the education um, the education uh, infrastructure budget. Um, so there will new schools be being built, um, and there's a number, a significant number of schools being built right now. I was just in Surrey uh, a couple of weeks ago and saw the uh, the school that's being built. That uh, it's actually coming in as a modular, and it's a, it looks amazing. Their, their classrooms are going to have it's a, a two story facility. It's going to have uh, sixteen classes, and it's. Uh, because it is modular, they can build it quick. They're going to start doing the break the groundwork and over spring break, and and uh, it will come in pieces and it will go up really quickly. They're hoping to have those those uh, sixteen new classrooms ready to go in the fall. So you know there is a lot of construction happening in this province. There's there's hospitals, there's schools, there's there's a lot happening. So, Minister Conroy, from your own words, then this is a budget for right now to help BC families. But what is the vision then for the future? Well, the budget also shows declining deficits over the, the fiscal plan of the budget. And you know, our, our goal is to get to a balanced budget. That's, that's, important. that's very important. Um, we've been prudent with the budget and budgeting, ensuring that you know, we, we've got contingencies because we want to make sure that, that we have that, those contingencies. They're there for emergencies like climate emergencies. And you know, we've had a lot of those in the recent years, like floods. Drought, um, wildfires have been a, a big one, and uh, we need to make sure that we have the contingencies there. So, those uh, that that is there for people, and and we are working towards a, a balanced budget. And as I said, we know that uh, we can afford it right now. Why take money from BC Hydro? Can BC Hydro afford that right now? Uh, yes, and and uh, it was an opportunity to to help people. We have a number of affordability uh, credits in the budget, and and that we've carried over from past budgets. We want to continue to help people. And some people say, well, one one doesn't do it, but uh, when you add them all up, it definitely does it. And when I talk to people, I'm quite happy. People in British Columbia are happy to get a uh, hundred dollars off. The- bill. You know, they're happy to get the, the savings that they're getting from childcare. They're happy to get the affordability credit from the, the BC family benefit and, and that bonus. So, you know, people, they, they're, they're grateful for it. They need it. And it, it's helping them to get through the, the tough times. And we think that, and even all the, you know, for, I'm not an economist, but economists are saying they believe that things are going to start to turn around. So is this the final word then, or will there be more coming? And the example I have, I was wondering about that is, you know, how many years have we been talking about a new school in Olympic Village? And there wasn't anything in the budget for that, but we keep hearing that potentially there's an announcement coming in a few weeks. So is this the final word on things? 
Um, there, no, the budget. I mean, it's a, a living document. Like we have to, the budget has to be printed. So things, like, things that might have been approved after the budget aren't necessarily in the budget because the budget, once you know, you have to. There, there's an end date to how long that you can keep adding things to the budget, right? So um, there are things that that uh, we're still working on. Things don't stop just because we're, you know, the budget's been when tabled. There's ongoing work done, and 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 there will be an announcement in the coming weeks by the ministry of education about that school. Okay, so what other kinds of things are still being worked on then? There's hospitals, there's other schools, there's there's con- considerable um, construction and road work. Like we're doing that, uh, that leg on the Highway 1 in the Fraser Valley that uh, People, I mean, people that live there have to put up with it. People like me who drive in from the interior and don't put up with it every day, but do put up with it, know how tough it is. And, and so we're definitely doing that work. We're expanding the, also getting the work done on Highway 1 between Kamloops and the Alberta border. So there, there is work being done and, and we're looking at, I mean, there's also, I mean, E1 Molly is, uh, is being constructed out in, in Port Moody and, and that's, you know, that's pretty exciting for people out there. Um, it's going to, it's going to be one of the biggest uh, um, facilities in, in that community, and they're going to uh, hire over 400 people. Um, that company decided to come to BC because it was the right place to invest in. What would you say to people who say this budget lacks vision, that they're not quite sure what this budget is all about? Well, the budget's about supporting people. It's about being there for people. It's about being there to make sure that they have the health care they need. It's about being there to make sure they have the, like, to help people get the housing they need. Um, it's about there to make sure that there's teachers in the classroom, that there's support people in the classroom. You know, we've done things like hired uh, 6,000 nurses in the last year alone because we know how desperately people need the health care and how important nurses are. It's about keeping uh, in expanding our childcare programs. I know the number of people I've talked to that have benefited by the uh, affordable childcare programs, the $10 a day is, is substantial and it makes a big difference. I don't know if you've heard um, Simi, but over a hundred thousand women have returned to the workplace since 2017, since we formed government and the majority of them are attributing it directly to our childcare program. The fact that they got affordable childcare. So that's good for the economy. It's good for those, those women working and, and, you know, it's, it's just, it shows that when, with, when you can help people, when you can bring in those programs that support people, that it's good for the economy and, and it's good moving forward. Minister Conroy, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Much appreciated. Yeah, Katrina Conroy is BC's Minister of Finance, breaking down uh, their take on the budget that they presented in the legislature yesterday. Obviously, uh, not everybody agrees with the more positive outlook that the government's going to give to their budget. And it just still so many questions, right? After talking to Vaughn about this and listening to the finance minister, you definitely get the sense as Vaughn pointed out, that they're not done with this budget, that there is more to come. I mean, it is an election year, so you would expect that, yeah, they must have held some things back, right? Schools in Surrey, that is a big one. Olympic Village School coming in a few weeks. Why not announce that in the budget? So what else should have been there? This is Mornings with Simi. Budget's about supporting people. It's about being there for people. It's about being there to make sure that they have the health care they need. It's about being there to make sure they have the, like, to help people get the housing they need. Um, it's about there to make sure that there's teachers in the classroom, that there's just poor people in the classroom. That's one way to look at it. That was Finance Minister Katrina Conroy on with us just a few minutes ago. But 
On the other side of things, there's a very different way to look at it. Joining us now to talk about that is Sonia Firstenau, who's leader of the BC Green Party. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, delighted. Thanks for having me, Simi. What is your take on the budget? Hmm. Well, I would say that uh, not unlike the interview we just heard with the Minister of Finance, uh, the budget really lacks a clear vision for the future of this province at a time when people are really struggling. A lot of British Columbians are holding on by a thread. This budget offered very few uh, really inspiring, hopeful ideas for how we're going to transform this province and this economy so that it doesn't leave people behind. And to hear the minister talk about, you know, we need, uh, we've had a lot of climate emergencies and that's why we've put that in the contingency budget. Yet again, the NDP demonstrates that it looks at climate change like some kind of contingency afterthought instead of realizing this is a time when we have to transform our economy, transform ourselves into a clean energy superpower and really create a future for our children that that lets them know that we're investing in in them and in the ability for them to thrive. And none of that, none of that was in this budget. It was a budget, again, in line with the last four years of budgets from this government, they've somehow managed to spend over $300 billion with very little to show from it. When she talks about services, people can't count on primary care. They can't count on health care being there when they need it. We have kids in overcrowded classrooms everywhere in this province without EAs and enough teachers to support them. And we have a government that's determined to increase density everywhere in this province but doesn't realize that you need to put in transit infrastructure so that we're not spending most of our time sitting in traffic jams. What do you think were the biggest missed opportunities here? What should they have done? Uh, It's the same missed opportunity of of every year um, since 2020 uh, that this government has uh, failed to recognize that climate change isn't going to magically stop producing the the terrible outcomes and results that we're seeing, the fires, the droughts, the floods. Uh, We have to orient ourselves in a way that recognizes action on climate is actually also action on affordability, that we have to connect the dots between the, the kind of economy that we have and the way that that economy doesn't have to leave people behind the way that we are seeing now. This government is more interested in protecting the interests of industry, more interested in ensuring that multinational oil and gas companies are going to line their pockets with profit than they are in seizing on the opportunity that we have in BC to like transform our economy and be a world leader when it comes to innovation around clean energy. Pretty sure industry would look at it differently than that. I'm sure they think that there wasn't enough support for them in the budget. Well, uh, it's interesting. Let's just look at the hydro rebate that uh, that seems to be a cornerstone. This government also loves to give away one-time rebates or, you know, $100 here and there, which do not solve the systemic cost of living problems that people have. But just that hydro rebate we're going to see hydro rates go up in this province because of Site C. Site C has largely been built to provide subsidized electricity rates to the Colombians are going to pay more for their energy. The LNG industry is going to have a sweetheart deal on their energy rates 
uh, ensuring that they have, this is what the NDP did in, in 2019. They made sure that the LNG industry was going to be guaranteed profits. Well, British Columbians foot the bill for that. Every region in the U.S. that has begun exporting LNG has seen their domestic energy rates go up. And I am certain that that's what we're going to see here because we are subsidizing a multinational dirty fossil fuel industry. What about the opportunity to, you know, provide more transit? What would you have done? What about, you know, infrastructure projects? So that's, I I was listening to to Devon Palmer uh, earlier, and and we said this yesterday. If if you're a government that says we're going to have, uh, we're going to go into debt, we're going to there should be something uh, to show for that, and, and this budget really doesn't have that. A transformative investment in public transit, and we've been calling for this for years now, but if you have the opportunity to take reliable, high-speed transit as your primary mode of transportation, you can say you don't need to have a vehicle. Uh, or you don't need to use a vehicle very much at all. That alone can save people enormous amount of money. You know what? I'm going to have to cut you off there just because it's been hard. Your phone has been cutting out. And it's been hard for us to hear you. But listen, Sorry thank you. That, That's Jimmy. okay. No worries. But thank you very much for your time this morning. We appreciate that. Thanks so much. Okay, bye. That is Sonia now, the leader of the BC Green Party. Uh, with criticisms about this year's BC budget, and certainly would like to hear from you on this too. Now, the government says, hey, no, there's a lot in there for families. Do you feel that? Do you feel that there are things in there for you, for your family? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. And the crane lost its load, debris fell and crashed into the building. We can see a number of smashed windows here from the ground and firefighters are working to secure any loose material now that could be a further hazard. Well, WorkSafe BC is now investigating the latest incident involving a crane here in Metro Vancouver. This was a tragic one where an employee was killed, and it is the third related incident involving a crane in the past year. So what is going wrong here? I mean, crane accidents happen all over the world. How do we fix this problem? Lauren Shapiro is the principal of Howard I. Shapiro and Associates Consulting Engineers and the author of Cranes and Derricks and joins us now. Lawrence, thank you for being here. Pleasure to be with you. Now, Lord, your book is is a pretty comprehensive guide for safely using cranes and derricks. So when you wrote it, did you think, boy, the industry really needs this? Well, my father wrote the original edition, and at that time, for sure, the uh, the industry needed something. It was uh, uh, the industry was was not very re- well regulated at the time, and practices were uh, were not uh, very standardized. Uh, and there were, there were a lot of accidents at the time. Um, it's now in its fourth edition, and things have improved quite a bit, but uh, there's certainly still plenty of need for, uh, for guidance from um, books like, like mine and uh, other, other uh, guidebooks that have written it, been written as well. And what, what are the most common problems when it comes to crane-related accidents? Uh, almost all accidents come down to human error. Uh, that error could occur on a construction site or it could occur somewhere else in preparing the crane. Um, so the, um, the key factors in um, eliminating crane accidents would be training and accountability. 
and having a chain of command, eliminating the sources of human error. And that's really what it comes down to then? Well, those are the key factors that would, you know, there's no, there's no such thing as the, there's nothing that's perfectly safe. There can never be a perfectly safe crane operation, but, uh, but accidents certainly can be reduced to, uh, to what would be considered in our culture to be an acceptable level, level of risk. We've, they've become so ubiquitous, though, haven't they, Lawrence? Like, we're on such a, a building, feels like, binge in the last 20 years. People, we've gotten quite used to seeing cranes, especially here in Metro Vancouver, cranes all over the skyline, but they do come with risk, don't they? Well, I mean, in, in any industry, there's risk. Of course, you know, when you drive, when you fly, and in building a building, there's risk. The risks in construction are not just crane-related, um, but um, but there are ways to mitigate risk, and um, and the industry and governments governments all over over the world are, are striving to uh, reduce those risks in construction and in cranes. And when you say sort of crane operators, that's where the train training is operator training is the big issue here. What what kind of training? is required for this? Is there a standardized level of training to operate a crane or does it just depend on where you're, where you are? Uh, there are, um, certification organizations, uh, and many states and I imagine provinces in Canada, uh, require operators to be, um, licensed in the U S all crane operators need to be certified. I, I'm not sure the practices in Canada, but I'm pretty sure it's, parallel or, or the same. Uh, not every jurisdiction requires licensing of operators, though. Should there be a more standardized, you know, a licensing way of doing this? Or can you, is it, depend, like, if you move to a new city, even in the United States, do you start all over again, or do you just take that certification with you? Well, I mean, uh, that's really a political question, uh, but there should be standards of training and certification that, that are transportable everywhere. Hmm. Okay, so has the technology changed at all when it comes to cranes over the years? Are there no, more safety provisions? Is there, you know, there's, is there more, is it more computerized? Yes, just like our cars and our airplanes, uh, cranes have gone from being mechanical contrivances to, to being um, computer-driven, electronically driven. Um, they, you know, they, they've gone from... Um, mostly being diesel machines to being more electric. Uh, they're, um, they're better controlled. Uh, there are more safety features than in the past. They do rely less on operator discretion and judgment than they had in the past. But in spite of all that, a crane operator is, uh, is a key element of the operation of the machine and is key to safety. It cannot be fully automated. Safety cannot ever be divorced from uh, the skills and training uh, and attentiveness of the operator and, and other members of the crew as well, not just the operator. Right. So we should never take it for granted. It still requires a, level of, a high level of skill. That's correct. All right. Well, Lawrence, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That's Lawrence Shapiro, principal of Howard I. Shapiro and Associates, consulting engineers and author of Cranes and Derricks, talking about the recent uh, crane incidents we've had here, but they happen all over the world, too. This is Mornings with Simi. 
right, we're doing something a little different here. We have a pair of tickets to give away to see the Vancouver Whitecaps. It's their home opener, March 2nd at BC Place. We have a bunch of contestants on the line. We're going to get, hold on if you're on the line, stay right there. Because first, we have a very special guest this morning. That's right. It is Vancouver Whitecaps coach Vanny Sartini, who is back with us. Welcome back, Vanny. Uh, thank you, Simi. How are you? I'm good. How was your break? Ah, oh, very good, very good. Like you know, the only thing that was bad that I wasn't able to speak with you. So now I know <laughs> we missed you too. Did you eat a lot of good pizza? Did you travel? Where'd you go? What'd you do? Well, you know, I I had even pizza in Japan last December. So very good. Was it very? Was it very good? <laughs> well, it was actually very good because by chance in Kyoto, I I find uh, I just googled because uh, I wanted pizza. It was like I went to Japan for a holiday after. Eight, nine days, me and my wife, we, we needed a little bit of pizza. So I just Googled <laughs> best pizza in Kyoto. And I just went with no expectation. But there was a guy, Japanese guy, that actually learned how to do pizza in Italy. And he was actually speaking a good Italian, too. So it was perfect. Wow. Was I was going to say, really you ate Japanese food, too, though, right? Yes, yes, of course. Okay, yeah, like I had like uh, 11 days of Japanese food and, and one night of pizza. That's okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're all rested up. So is the team ready? Have you started practice? Everything is good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been all around the place for preseason. We've been in Spain, in Mexico, in California, tried to have games and, uh, and prepare the team uh, the best. And uh, hopefully... Well, I'm not, not hopefully. I think I'm, I think we're ready to to do a good job and to start very well next week. Okay, good because we're giving we've been giving away tickets all week for the home opener on March second. You're going to help out our contestants. Are you ready? I uh, yes, I hope to uh, to be a good helper. Yeah. I hope so too. Well, and I think Taylor <laughs> hopes so too. We have Taylor on the line. Good morning. Hi, how are you? I'm good, Taylor. How are you today? I'm great. Hi, Vanny. Hi, Taylor. <laughs> okay, so Taylor, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pull a question out of our random trivia question machine. We're going to give you a chance to answer it. If you get it right, great, you win the tickets. If you don't get it right, though, we're going to use Vanny as a lifeline. We're then we're going to let Vanny try to answer it, and if he guesses correctly, you still win the tickets. Sound good? Oh, wow, double chance, right on. Double chance. Okay, so Taylor, here comes your question. <laughs> Uh, Jeez. Okay. Taylor, here's your trivia question. Who was the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean? That is uh, the legendary Amelia Earhart. Oh. Taylor, you got you lucked out on that one. I feel like that was a bit of an easy one, but that's the thing about the random trivia question machine. Congratulations. You're going to go see the Whitecaps. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, hold on the line so we can get your information. And Vanny, we know you're going to put on a great show for Taylor and all the people who've won tickets this week, right? Yes, yes, yes. We'll, we'll, we'll try to do it. And I'm, I'm also a little disappointed because I knew the answer, so I oh. wanted to say I wanted to say that. <laughs> Yeah, of course you knew the answer. Hey, listen, did you buy did you buy a whole bunch of new pairs of socks for this season? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a lot of apparel. Like we can discuss from next week, like you know how 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 to approach the season at, at the best. Oh, so is this new for you? You think during the the off time, you think okay, I have to think about what I'm going to do differently this year. Well, not it's not I think, but if I see something that it can be used for that, it it, it goes like and uh, you know you you pick up ram, random things from every place that you go, like uh, I don't know a little doll in Mexico or a little uh, good luck thing from temple in Japan. So you we try to get positive energy from everywhere. 
Well, you know what? I hope it works. And we're really looking forward to talking to you next week and seeing the Whitecaps kick off. So thanks very much, Manny. No problem. Thank you so much. Bye, Sim. Bye. Bye. That is Vanny Sartidi, head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. And so, yes, we gave away tickets all this week. You get to go see the Whitecaps in action March the 2nd, BC Place. That is next week. So we will be talking again, as we do during the Whitecaps season, every Friday morning with coach Vanny Sartini as they get ready to kick off the season. The game next week, by the way, is Charlotte. Kickoff is at 4.30. You can get your tickets today, and you can also listen to every Vancouver Whitecaps game on our sister station and home of the Whitecaps at AM 7.30. This is Mornings with Simi. Norval Morisot, they call him the Picasso of the North. Norval Morisot is a, a spiritual supernova, you know, a dynamo. Where Morisot was trying to lift people up, there were people who have been poisoning Morisot's legacy. Okay, they're talking about renowned Canadian artist Norval Morisot. He's even been called the Picasso of the North. And if you don't know his name, all I'd say, look up his art and you will immediately recognize it. It is iconic. He has an incredible artistic legacy. But now his name isn't just associated with his incredible art. It's also associated with forgery because for years there was an organized effort to copy his work and profit from it. He even tried to tell museums and auction houses that this was happening and the art world didn't listen. Can you imagine? The actual artist is telling you, I didn't create that. Don't don't attribute that to me. And they didn't believe him. I mean, it was a huge theft over the years, millions of dollars. It sounds unbelievable. Well, you should do what I did and read the latest issue of Smithsonian Magazine, where the story called The Biggest Art Fraud in History just made me want to pull my hair out. And the author of that article, Jordan Michael Smith, joins us now. Jordan, thank you for being here. Glad to be here, Simi. It really is astounding. I mean, can you believe you wrote about it? It must be unbelievable. No, when I was researching and reporting the story, I I kept learning things that uh, were astonishing and and depressing in in equal measure. It it really was uh, an astounding story. Okay. How big of an art fraud was this, Jordan? Well, the police in Thunder Bay and the Ontario Provincial Police are saying that uh, it was upwards of $100 million in fraud uh, and about uh, upwards of 10,000 pieces of uh, fraudulent artwork. So uh, that those figures make it the biggest art fraud in history, and it happened right in Ontario in our lifetimes. How did this happen? What was going on? Well, um, you know... Only one person so far ha- has pled guilty, and there are seven other people uh, who are, are still to go on trial. So all the facts are still to be uncovered. But what we do know is that there were three overlapping rings of producing fakes uh, throughout Ontario, really starting uh, in the 1980s and getting going in the 1990s. And um, it lasted all the way uh, up until the 2010s. So we're talking about about happening over decades, um, really involving um, probably um, at least a dozen people producing the forgeries. But what's really interesting is that 
there were lots of auctioneers um, and sellers, dealers who who sort of turned a blind eye uh, and maybe knew what was going on, but, but didn't want to know the the particular details about exactly uh, what was happening. So so it really was um, an, a, a wide ranging conspiracy. This is the thing that really got me about your story is that you had the artist himself, Norval Morisot, saying publicly, I didn't paint that. I didn't do that. And yet people didn't believe him. Why? Some of it had to do with uh, he, he, his advanced age, and uh, he had some complications from Parkinson's disease. And so by that point, um, he had trouble speaking. Um, however, uh, it was also clear that, that doctors said he was, he was fine and functioning cognitively. And so that um, he, he was also well within his capacities to point things out. Part of it was a stereotype. Um, Norval Morisot was an Ojibwe painter. And um, after after suffering uh, horrific events at a, at a residential school in the 1950s, um, he he fell into alcoholism and drug misuse. And um, you know, so uh, some of this sort of tied into stereotypes about indigenous people um, not having the, the mental capacity or, or or being too inebriated to function properly. And certainly that was at play here too. So they were saying, oh, he forgot that he painted these or he doesn't remember painting these because that just blows my mind that that was acceptable that people would say that. So, yeah, we're still going to sell this as one of his. Oh, absolutely. And um, amazingly, even in the courts, that passed muster because, um, you know, they were able to say, well, more so uh, might not have known what he painted. He might have uh, been too drunk or too high to remember the things that he did. But of course, the the man could recognize his own work. Of course. And um, and uh, but astonishingly, astonishingly, that worked within courts and that worked uh, among dealers and, and auctioneers just makes me so angry, Jordan, when I read about this and how many years this went on for. You're saying that, well, they were saying, oh, no, no, he doesn't remember painting this, but yet the artworks were so beautiful, people, they still wanted to get top dollar for it? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Yeah, you know, it it really was contradictory. And the idea that the artist himself uh, would not be in charge of it and that um, it, it was that you know, mostly white people who were profiting from his work, who really were the experts on Norval Morisot's own art. Um, that is absolutely at play here and uh, explains a lot why it went on for so long. Yeah. So unfortunately, he has passed away, so he won't see this reckoning. But even with the reckoning that happened, how does this tie into the Bare Naked Ladies? Well, uh, a member of the Bare Naked Ladies, key, uh, keyboardist Kevin Hearn, actually bought a Norval Morisot that he thought was legitimate because the dealer had told him it was. Uh, and then um, he, the Art Gallery of Ontario, which he, he generally, uh, generously donated the painting to, uh, they told him it was a fake. And, and most people who buy fakes um, either... Uh, sort of write off the fact that uh, they were duped or too embarrassed to come forward. But but Kevin Hearn um, had the courage uh, and the resources to really follow through. And he was the one who, more than anyone else, really un- unraveled this whole conspiracy.
conspiracy. What he he did was um, attach with a lawyer named Jonathan Summer, and um, and Summer and uh, a partner of his um, went around all over Ontario to to Thunder Bay, particularly, but also in Toronto to find out exactly. Uh, how this all started and how it went on for so long. And, and Kevin Hearn, um, a, a judge, um, e- even said that more so, uh, said that uh, Hearn couldn't prove that, um, that his more so was fake. He had to prove um, that uh, it was real, which is, of course, really difficult to do when the artist is dead. Um, and uh, still, he appealed the decision and uh, he paid for. Uh, a lawyer. He helped get a, a documentary made called "There Are No Fakes," which I encourage everyone to watch. Uh, th- that really uncovered this whole thing. And if it wasn't for for Kevin Hearn and, and Jonathan Summer, uh, we probably would never know about this. So people made there were a, a group of people who were clearly making a lot of money off of this. Like I had no idea you could make tens of millions of dollars off of an art fraud like that. Yeah. Um, it's really unfortunate. Canada, unlike the United States, does not have in, in, uh, a dedicated team looking into art fraud. The FBI, for example, has an art, an art crimes division, uh, whereas the RCMP uh, does not. And they really should because um, art fraud is quite prevalent. Uh, and especially of, of uh, the theft of indigenous artists uh, it happens all the time. And um, it's something that can command huge fees. And often the artist doesn't even know it's going on. Oh boy. Okay. So then we're, are we finally, do you think getting to a point uh, where we realize that this has been going on and what happens to all of those people in museums and art houses out there that have fake Morisos? Well, um, anybody who has a Morisot a should get it officially appraised. Um, Jonathan Summer, Kevin Hearn's lawyer, has a, a very reputable company uh, that will do that. Um, but but um, really any museum um, or or certainly gallery, uh, should have their uh, artwork checked by an expert. And, and, and so should private collectors. You really can't be sure at this point, uh, unless Morriso himself uh, gave you the art, that, w- that what you have is an authentic. The fakes are in China. They're in Germany. Uh, they really are uh, all over Europe and Asia at this point. And, and, and so some of them uh, will probably never track down uh, because there were thousands and thousands of them, of them distributed over so long a period. It is astonishing. Jordan, did you, when you were digging into this story, you and you have a lot of details in here about finding the people who were potentially responsible for this. Was it challenging? Was it, or was it all just kind of hiding in plain sight? For me, it was mostly hiding in plain sight because of the work that uh, Kevin Hearn and Jonathan Summer and uh, the Thunder Bay police had done. All I sort of uh, did was was put more, more, most of the pieces together uh, in a readable format. But, but in terms of the actual digging, uh, much of that had already been done. It is an amazing story. Jordan, thank you so much for telling it. My pleasure. We appreciate that. Jordan Michael Smith is the award-winning journalist and author of an article in the latest edition of Smithsonian Magazine. You should check it out. It is called The Biggest Art Fraud in History, and it happened right here in Canada involving Indigenous artist Norval Morisot and just a years-long fraud of people passing his work off as legitimate when it wasn't even when the artist himself said 
nope, that's not mine. Nope, people are stealing my work. And art houses still said, no, 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 he doesn't know he painted this. He doesn't remember he painted this. Like, just shocking. And we're talking about a, like $100 million worth of stolen artwork. It is unreal. Read the article. It is in the Smithsonian. It's absolutely fascinating.